and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. This week, we're going to recap the first seven months at City Council, which, with the exception of two meetings in September, will constitute the vast majority of council business before this fall's election. So let's start at the beginning, January. There was nothing terribly controversial at the first City Council meeting of 2022, but there was a lot of hopeful thinking in the two reports at Committee of the Whole. Most of that meeting was about the economic development and tourism strategy, which will help guide the city's pandemic recovery and support efforts to make Guelph an attractive tourist destination. One of the biggest pieces of the new plan is the municipal accommodation tax, or the MAT, which is a 4% surcharge on people booking hotel rooms in Guelph, and it will go towards a dedicated fund to support and promote tourism. Guelph is one of the last cities amongst its comparators to initiate a MAT, and the exact detail of its initiative would be the subject of a meeting a few weeks after this one. In the course of approving the economic development and tourism strategy, there were some questions about the recent loss of the Holiday Inn and whether Guelph hotels have the capacity to support these tourism initiatives. And then there's the fact that Guelph is bereft of a hotel facility in the core, There were some questions about why the report didn't have more emphasis on promoting tourism through arts and culture, given the return on investment as well. Council revisited that subject at the regular meeting a few weeks later. There were some comments about getting Guelph's place-finding and heritage ducks in a row before Guelph's bicentennial in just five years' time, but the strategy was approved by Council. There was one topic of conversation at January's planning meeting, shaping Guelph Growth Management Strategy and Land Needs Assessment. This fed into the new official plan amendment, which was passed a few months later. It analyzed the growth of the city as a city-wide concern, but still over 20 delegates were almost universally focused on one particular area, the Rolling Hills neighborhood south of Clare Road East. The delegations from Rolling Hills fell into one of two camps. There were the ones that generally approved the development of area number one in Rolling Hills, so long as area number two is preserved as it is. And then there were the people that wanted to keep the hands of city planners and local developers off the area entirely. Only Dr. Hugh Whiteley spoke to this citywide plan with concerns about the low intensification targets and the lack of emphasis on net zero builds. When it was Council's turn to ask questions, there was some probing around the protection of environmentally sensitive areas in Rolling Hills, the order in which Council will be receiving the various master plans supporting this growth, and some queries about specific corners of the city and whether they will be able to achieve targets laid out in the growth strategy. There were also a few questions about changing the intensification targets or going back to the province to get a different growth target. Ultimately, Council voted unanimously to receive the Growth Management Strategy and Land Needs Assessment and the request to the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing for a modified minimum intensification target of 46%. Councillor Philalt politely declined to endorse the modified population forecast of 208,000 by 2051, though. There was also one special meeting of council in the month of January where the virtual horseshoe heard and discussed the final version of the transportation master plan. 
There were 10 delegates on that matter with a range of issues they were concerned about. There was some anxiety about the growing congestion on Niska and Whitelaw roads and the fact that there wasn't much study in cut-through traffic as part of the plan. Representatives from some groups looked to promote their pet projects, and one delegate suggested the possible creation of toll roads as a way to help cover the cost of road infrastructure and as a possible replacement for gas taxes as more people move to electric. The First Amendment to the plan was made by Councillor Dominique O'Rourke, who wanted it made explicit that staff come back to council for final approval of any plan to create transit-dedicated lanes on Guelph roads. The motion failed in a 6-6 vote, though, as council was evenly divided as to whether that was managerial overreach. The next motion from Councillor Kathy Downer was in addition to the main motion, and it concerned consultation with the University of Guelph and Heritage Guelph on any future widening of Gordon Street, and that the project come back for council approval in order to initiate. It's a big project that was scuttled in the early aughts by the UFG, so council wants to make sure that all proverbial ducks are lined up before proceeding. Councillor Mike Salisbury proposed a motion to make Whitelaw Road a local road instead of a collector. There was some concern that a similar fate to Niska and Downey Roads is awaiting Whitelaw with increased traffic from drivers looking for shortcuts between major roads, but there was not enough concern from council to, in order to pass the motion, and it failed 3-9. to nine. The final move came from O'Rourke, who suggested that staff come up with a new transportation reserve fund to collect revenues from red light cameras and other transportation safety initiatives. Staff said that this was a project that they were working on already, and it passed unanimously. While there were a couple of dissenters in the final vote, the motion to approve the transportation master plan and the five accompanying motions were passed by a majority of council. At the regular meeting in January, the only new item on the agenda was a motion endorsing a legal challenge to Quebec's Bill 21, and that the city of Guelph considers the bill discriminatory. Some councillors were enthusiastic about voting for the motion, but Councillor Mark McKinnon took a principled stand that feel-good motions like this were out of the scope of a municipal government, and abstained. The first super-long meeting of the year was February's Committee of the Whole, which featured some big, interesting, and long-in-the-works projects that finally came up for approval. First up was the short-term and long-term housing report. The primary source of friction, though, was limiting short-term rentals like Airbnbs to a person's primary residence, meaning that you can't post a house that you exclusively use as a short-term rental property on the site. There were two delegates who spoke against the idea, and they both made the point that there are already a number of safeguards in various short-term rental apps to make sure that people who abuse the system are kept out of it. Some on council made that point too, including Councillor Dan Gibson, who noted that you have to be a renter or vendor in good standing on apps like Airbnb in order to keep using the service. He also added that he would rather staff use a registry option instead of a license, but when committee passed an amendment to strike the principal residence requirement, he took the win anyway. Councillor Rodrigo Goller expressed a concern about seeing Guelph's rental housing stock getting turned into short-term rental offerings, which would also have a negative effect on affordability. A motion would be brought forward at the regular council meeting at the end of the month that would request feedback from the community about what option for licensing short-term rentals 
works best, where the rental is the owner's primary residence or where it is not their primary residence. In terms of the long-term rentals, committee passed a motion asking staff to spend the next two years updating their data so that the next council might revisit the possibility of licensing those two. Next, council heard about implementing the Municipal Accommodation Tax, or the MAT, which has been so long in the works that council only seemed to have questions of clarification. There was also some dreaming about how best to use those funds, which might be summed up best as a bike city versus music city idea, but the four MAT recommendations ended up being passed 11 to 1. The final item was the Property Assessed Clean Energy Program, or PACE, which is a program that will allow homeowners to get an interest-free loan to make green energy improvements to their home. The program will be administered by the City of Guelph, but the loan money is coming from the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. A few people on committee were concerned about the city getting into another green energy program from the government that massively fails to pay off, and they also wanted to make sure that the city can recover administration costs over the course of the program's 20-year time span. There was also some concern, because there's only been a couple of Ontario municipalities that have tried this, so there's not a lot of data about what works and what doesn't with these programs. A couple of councillors tried to bring forward an amendment to make it explicit that the city recoups its administration costs, but there was some confusion about what exactly that would look like and what costs would be included. Staff noted that they were still working out the details with the FCM at the time and that they didn't have a lot of hard answers, so the amendment was eventually scrapped. Another motion to refer all recommendations to the end of the month also failed. Ultimately, committee decided that the money on the table was too good to pass up, and since it was just a couple of months earlier that the community packed the virtual gallery to demand that climate change be made a council priority, the majority agreed that they needed to push on with the program even as they waited for answers to key questions. When PACE came back at the end of the month, Councillor O'Rourke produced an amendment to direct staff to come up with a user-free program that could recoup administrative costs not funded through the FCM and thus hopefully answer any lingering concern about the city eating any extra costs from the program. That amendment was passed, and so were all the recommendations. The city reached a deal with the FCM before the July Council meeting that resulted in the disbandment of our Energy Guelph, who first proposed such a program as PACE. At February's planning meeting, there was one delegate who wanted to speak to the decision report to allow 18 stacked townhouses at 77 Victoria Road North because he was concerned about the increase in traffic to the area and the proposed height of the three-story townhouses, which will be right next to a one-story school. It all seemed pretty straightforward, and then council started to get absorbed in what seemed like the minutia of matters of site planning. Councillor Bob Bell proposed a motion to direct staff to require the owner to put a two-meter fence along the north end of the property to act as a buffer, but some on council felt this was an example of micromanagement and outside of the powers of council to direct. There ended up being no support to even proceed to a formal vote on that motion. While some councillors had notes about snow removal, 
the recommendation was eventually passed 11 to 1, as it was originally written without any additional caveats or demands. Council also received an application from the Shell Station at the corner of Speedvale and Edinburgh to expand by increasing the floor space of the convenience store and adding an automated car wash. Council also approved the redevelopment of the plaza at Willow and Dawson that will see a section of the current building removed and then replaced with two apartment towers that will have commercial on the ground floor. Before the regular council meeting at the end of the month, there was an unusual matter that required council to sit as tribunal. The owners of 2 Quebec Street were protesting the fact that they had to pay Educational Development Charges, or EDCs, on their renovation of second-floor offices into 14 new apartments. If they couldn't get the money back, then they wanted the EDCs to be adjusted back to when they applied for the building permit to renovate in September 2019, as opposed to when they received it in October 2021. Why, do you ask? The lawyer for the owners made the argument that the 14 new units were adding to precious rental stock in the middle of a housing crisis and that the tower had paid back millions in taxes to the city over the last 50 years. The lawyer for the two school boards politely disagreed and said that the EDCs were properly assigned and that the construction of the building predated the commencement of the collection of EDCs in the 1990s, so it could be argued that 2 Quebec Street has never paid their fair share. Council, acting as tribunal, retired to closed session and a short time later emerged to say that they were reserving their decision. Because of how long it took to dispatch that matter before tribunal, the open session of the regular meeting started 25 minutes late, with council coming out of closed session to undo a fall 2021 decision to designate 239 Elizabeth Street as a heritage building. Instead, council approved the demolition and revoked the designation by a vote of 7-5. to five. In an additional motion, Councillor Leanne Caron wanted Heritage Guelph to review the file in closed session and then see if they can disclose some of the conversation and debate around 239 Elizabeth. That motion was approved 11-1. to 1. February ended with Councillor McKinnon trying to bring forward a motion to reconsider Council's past votes on alternative voting methods for the 2022 election in order to implement internet voting as an option instead. That vote could not reach the nine-vote threshold to overturn the previous decision of council, and it failed five to seven. City Council kicked off the meetings of March by holding its first true hybrid council meeting in the council chambers. The mayor, five councillors, the exec team, and the media were all in the chamber while everyone else beamed in on the big screen. The first topic was the follow-up report about what went wrong with the decision-making around the demolition of 797 Victoria Road North. Promises were made that this was a mistake that would not happen again as city staff pursued 14 recommendations to improve the processes and oversight on heritage, but Councillor Caron put forward a motion to get an interim report later this year on the improvements so far, and that was approved unanimously. The next item was the recommendations of the Council Renumeration and Support Advisory Committee, and over the course of about two hours, committee changed all the recommendations. First, Council undid the recommendation to cut the mayor's salary to bring that in line with the request to have all salaries reflect the 55 percentile of the city's non-union employees. Councillor Downer, who made the motion, said that it didn't make sense to go backwards since there would be no commensurate cut to the mayor's workload next term. That one was passed 8-5. to five. 
The next amendment deleted recommendation number two entirely, the one proposing that counselors be declared full-time positions. Committee decided that since the Municipal Act makes no mention about counselors being either part-time or full-time, then the City of Guelph policy shouldn't either, which also launched another debate about whether or not the nature of the job is part-time or full-time. The motion was eventually passed, though, 12 to 1. Then, in the final adjustment to the recommendations, committee replaced the suggested $75,000 annual salary for counselors with the alternative recommendation for a little over $51,000. The amendment was passed 10 to 3, but a few counselors were skeptical of the criteria and information used to reach that $51,000 number, so an additional motion was passed asking staff for more information to be received for the regular meeting at the end of the month. The amended recommendations of the City Council Renumeration and Support Advisory Committee report came back to haunt Council at the end of the month, not satisfied with the complete rework of the recommendations done on March 7th. Council had a few more changes to make. First, the City Council salary for the next term was further adjusted to $47,446 which is a 14.6% increase over their current salary. The adjusted number comes from a staff memo prepared for the meeting, and it apparently more closely reflects that 55th percentile figure that the committee was aiming for. Recommendation number four was also amended, removing the intention to get another council remuneration and support advisory committee together in 2026, and instead assigning their duties to staff. The justification from Councillor Downer was that this is twice that Council did not enact the committee's advice, so why would Council put together a committee like this ever again? That motion passed 8-5. to In terms of additional motions, Councillor Caron asked staff to look at getting Council connected with OMERS, which is the Canadian Public Pension Plan Fund. Guelph is one of the few among its comparators group to not buy into OMERS, so the motion passed 11-2, to 2, and a report should still come back sometime before the end of this term. Council also approved a motion from Councillor O'Rourke to do a total compensation analysis for the mayor's salary before the next review. There was a lot of public interest in one specific project at March's planning meeting in the statutory public meeting report for 1373 to 1389 Gordon Street, Reed's Heritage Properties was asking to build a nine-story tower with about 100 units, including a first-floor retail and offices on the top floor. Nearly a dozen delegates came out to voice their concerns about the project, and they all centered around some familiar themes. On the environment area, residents were concerned about the impacts on wildlife in the area and the loss of several older trees on the property, especially when you take into account that most of the property's footprint will be taken up by a parking lot. On density, residents were worried that the project is too tall for the surrounding area, and they were especially worried about the additional pressure of more traffic along this stretch of Gordon, which is already so busy and without a crosswalk available at Vaughn Street. Afterward, Council noted that the delegates seemed very well informed, and they articulated their concerns very clearly. Attention was paid, though, when the developer's planner said that the owners are prepared to work with the community, and before the vote to receive the report was cast, Mayor Cam Guthrie explicitly told developers that they had a problem with this project. March ended with a special Wednesday session to hold the statutory planning meeting for official plan amendment number 80. 
the latest update to Guelph's official plan. After laying out all the changes, Council heard from eight delegates, and there was some widespread concern about environmental protections, open space, park development, and safeguarding natural heritage systems. A couple of delegates from the Rolling Hills area also expressed concerns about that area's redevelopment, while other delegates wanted some assurance that the real cost of growth was going to be accurately reflected in this amendment. Questions from council dealt with many of those same points of conversation. There was some anxiety about heritage properties and making sure that there's protection for buildings on the cooling list until staff are finished their review. Many councillors looked at development issues in their area, like Councillor Gibson's double-check about the allowance of residential in the mixed-use node at York and Victoria, or Councillor O'Rourke's concern about the increasing densities along Gordon Street. The report ended up being received unanimously. April's Committee of the Whole meeting was a long one, and it even started an hour earlier than usual. Perhaps someone at City Hall was anticipating the complexities of the issues that were going to be presented. The first big issue was the Solid Waste Management Master Plan recommendations of particular interest. What's the planned elimination of single-use plastic items? The initiative proposed by staff was to ban shopping bags, straws, and polystyrene takeout containers and cups in March 2023, and then introduce a $1 fee for reusable bags and a $0.25 fee for disposable cups in March 2024. Some questions from council asked why the ban on those specific items and the general manager of environmental services, Jennifer Rose, said it was because they were the most problematic. Others were concerned about the long time horizon for initiating the plan, and Rose said that it was because businesses are going to need the time to adapt by buying new equipment and materials, which is also why they get to keep the fees. And what about waiting till the federal government releases the details of their single-use plastic ban? Well, there were still a lot of unanswered questions about what all that would involve. At one point, Councillor McKinnon moved a motion to charge a $1 fee for plastic cups and remove the fee for reusable bags entirely. His rationale was that $0.25 is not going to be the disincentive the city hopes it will, while not having a fee on the bags will be more likely to encourage their use. The motion on the bags was ultimately removed, and the motion on cups ended up failing as the majority on council felt that there wasn't enough data to back up that direction. Mayor Guthrie was able to get support for a couple of motions, one to direct staff to get more feedback before the initiation of Phase 2 on the single-use ban, and an adjustment to the timeline for the start of Phase 1, which is now January 1st, 2023. Councillor Belzo was unable to change minds about alterations to Industrial, Commercial, and Institutional Collection, or ICI Collection, which means his WIC operation in the ward will be one of 200 businesses that will no longer be getting residential waste service in Guelph. Most of the recommendations were passed unanimously, but three members of council voted against the changes to ICI Collection and a couple of the other recommendations. Next, committee talked about the inflationary pressures on the capital budget. The GM of finance, Tara Baker, said her message was don't panic and that things are moving too quickly to set any long-term direction about changing the plan. That's why she and staff were recommending a short-term delegation of authority to work within the approved capital budget to deal with those pressures. Four delegates expressed concern about delegating that authority. And the tenor of those comments was not always as conciliatory as committee might have liked. 
accusations that staff were unaccountable to the public and that city council were giving up their oversight role were met with great offense and the perceived slights were as much a topic of conversation as the main motion. Many on council tried to find a way to have a bit more oversight beyond a quarterly information report, but timing was the issue again. Circumstances moved too quickly, and by the time an emergency council meeting could be called, an opportunity might be lost. Guthrie summed up the comments best when he said that the community gives council their trust and council gives staff their trust. The recommendation was accepted in a vote of 11 to 2, with Bell as one of the no votes. The Ward 1 councillor said committee should have removed the South End Community Center entirely from the capital budget and then committed to making further cuts. The last item for the committee meeting was the park plan, which noted the difficulty going forward in securing the exact same amount of parkland access per person in the future that Guelph enjoys right now. The three delegates were concerned about that too, but advanced discussions about funding had to be reserved for the meeting about the Parkland Dedication Bylaw update the very next week. Council approved the Parkland and passed an additional motion from Councillor Caron that directed staff to look at a wide range of options for funding Parkland. At that special meeting on April the 13th, Council dealt with the new community benefit charge and changes to the Parkland Dedication Bylaw. Both matters were relatively straightforward, with new policy designed in response to legislative changes at the provincial level. But because it involves parks and parkland, there was a lot of interest in this meeting from the public. In brief, the CBC will go to things not covered by development charges anymore, parking and some studies, as well as things that were never covered by DCs, like public art, community gardens, municipal administration buildings, etc. That's a 4% cap on the CBC, and it only applies to developments five stories or more. The changes to the Parkland Dedication Bylaw, again, were largely administrative, but a full review of the PDB will be coming up next year. For the delegates, it was all about the PDB. They were all advocating to council to push for the maximum amount of money and or land, mostly land, that the city can get for parks. Though that was not really a matter up for debate at this meeting. A lot of attention was on the Ontario reformatory lands, which many delegates phrased as an open space under threat of development and in danger of being lost unless the city acts aggressively. Some councillors seemed like they wanted to make changes to the recommendation, but since all six recommendations were essentially referrals to a July meeting, staff asked council to give them direction so that they can do some more fulsome research and make better informed potential changes. Councillors also had caps at top of mind, and many of their questions went that way, while other councillors asked questions of clarity about how certain decisions were made, about how much money the CBCs can raise, or what they can be applied to, or how developers can choose to apply either the portion of land or cash in lieu options, according to the PDB. The results of that discussion between council and staff showed that Guelph isn't getting what it needs from developers to cover the cost of growth, but there also aren't a lot of options right now to close that gap. After getting all their questions answered, council voted unanimously to refer the recommendations. A South End neighborhood was out in force at the planning meeting in April to speak against a proposed development at 12 Pool Street, part of a broader subdivision long in limbo before the various iterations of the Ontario Land Tribunal. The developer wanted to build almost 500 units in the form of 308 stacked townhouses and one 185-unit apartment building. 
There were five delegates against the project, citing concerns about the amount of density on the site, the impact of all that traffic on the area, the size of the roads, the lack of available transit or amenities that the new residents could walk to. The impact on local wildlife and natural habitat were also reasons why that the application should be refused, and the project's manager tried to persuade council that this development presented a good opportunity for young professionals to get into the housing market. Before approving receipt of the application, councillors echoed a lot of the concerns that residents had because the developers were now asking for more units on this one tract than all the units originally asked for when the subdivision was first proposed. There were also concerns about the underground visitors' parking and the way that the developer was throwing out words like affordability and supply in order to provoke an emotional response from the horseshoe. Somewhat easier to accept was staff's approval of a plan to turn the old Holiday Inn on Scottsdale into a student residence, and then after that was a property owner's opposition to the designation of 919 York Road as a heritage property. The owner said that the Matthews Farmhouse, which is on the property, is too far gone to be saved and is actually a danger to the public. But staff was steadfast in its finding that the house can still be salvaged and repurposed. Council approved the staff recommendation to proceed with the designation despite the two Ward 1 councillors voting against it. April's regular meeting was a long retread of most of the committee business. After passing the consent agenda items, Council dug back into the park plan. DCAO Colleen Clack-Bush reiterated that this was only meant to be a background document to be used as a defense in any future decision about the Parkland Dedication Bylaw. Council then came back to the Solid Waste Management Master Plan recommendations and a proposed change to the single-use plastic ban after some feedback from the Accessibility Advisory Committee. The AAC wanted plastic straws to be removed from the proposed list of banned items in Phase 1 because it would put an unfair burden on people with disabilities who have to use straws. Although they didn't have any objection to that request. The debate was about how soon staff could deliver a recommendation about straws after doing more community feedback. Staff wanted to bring information back before changes went into effect with Phase 2 of the ban in January 2024, but Mayor Guthrie wanted something more timely. Council would vote in favor of a motion to direct staff to bring forward a report later this year when they approve the bylaws for Phase 1 of the ban, which again goes into effect on New Year's Day 2023. Councillor McKinnon tried again to get Council to approve a $1 fee for disposable cups that are not 100% recyclable as part of the Phase 2 ban, although McKinnon's motion improved on the one that he had brought forward to committee earlier that month with some very specific language about the types of cups he ran into the same doubts from his colleagues about the lack of data proving that $1 is more of a deterrent than the proposed $0.25. Cents. Even after the motion was divided into two clauses, it ended up failing four to nine. Before the final passage of the fully amended recommendation, Councillor Bell tried again to make staff reconsider their move to end ICI pickup at 200 businesses along residential routes, including his business. But again, he only found support from his wardmate, Councillor Gibson. A long discussion about the state of the city's 2021 finances kicked off May's meetings at Committee of the Whole. The reports themselves were not terribly controversial, as Treasurer Baker laid out how staff were able to turn an approximate $2.5 million deficit into a $2.5 million surplus thanks to safe restart funding. But there were also a lot of thoughts about what to do 
with that surplus. The first motion came from Mayor Guthrie, who asked to take the $1.575 million transfer to the Police Operating Contingency Reserve and put just $1 million in the reserve instead so that the rest of the money could go into the Affordable Housing Reserve. Guthrie's argument was that spending money on affordable housing now means saving money on policing later. Plus, the city's affordable housing reserve was, by that point, nearly empty. Did Guthrie clear this with the police board? He did, and they asked to hold on to at least $1 million in case the grant money runs out for any of the programs that are currently being funded from upper levels of government. Councillor Salisbury, though, wanted to flip the sums and bank $1 million for affordable housing, but he couldn't find a second person to make that motion official. Two other councillors expressed concern about setting a precedent by taking a portion of a surplus from an outside board and putting it in a separate city account, but the amendment passed just the same, 10 to 3. Those questions about precedent and getting permission came back to haunt at the end of the month when council corrected the apparent overstep in their authority by restoring a full allocation to the police reserve and taking funds for affordable housing from the surplus amount assigned to the infrastructure renewal reserve. That motion was passed 12 to 1 with only Councillor Salisbury voting against it. Back at committee, Guthrie moved to spend $500,000 of the surplus on the implementation of key service rationalization recommendations to expand digital customer service measures, especially the digitization of development applications. This was more of an uphill climb for committee, but DCAO Trevor Lee explained that the grant from the provincial government is not enough to get the job done and staff really needed the top up. So that amendment passed 11 to 2. A motion from Councillor June Hoffland recommended a transfer of $1.3 million to cover the city's half of upgrades to the rail crossing signals in the area of Paisley at Edinburgh. CN Rail offered to fund that work 50-50 with the City of Guelph, which involves a system where the train engineer will be able to manually override the lights and gates once the train has departed the intersection as opposed to the current automated controls that are just activated whenever a train approaches the crossing. It's an imperfect solution, but it's one that could avoid traffic jams due to busy train schedules in this part of town. Committee approved that funding unanimously, and work could potentially begin sometime in 2023. At May's planning meeting, Council approved 96 new townhouses and a new beer store building at 710 Woolwich Street, as well as the York Road Elizabeth Street Urban Design Concept Recommendation Report, and they also heard the application for a co-op housing project at 205 to 213 Speedville Avenue East, which was received unanimously. The Claire Maltby secondary plan was officially complete at a special meeting on May 16th, although it is now being appealed at the Ontario Land Tribunal. After the staff presentation, there were 10 delegates. Notably absent, though, were any of the major developers that hold land in the area, so it fell to parkland enthusiasts and residents concerned about the potential expense of the plan to offer their notes. Back at council, there were questions to staff around road layout and making sure that the yet-to-be-named Street A, which will pass through portions of the Moraine Ribbon, will be environmentally sound. There were also some questions about capital costs, population figures, and whether or not the plan has allowances to get the most amount of parkland. On that last point, staff said because the development is phased, 
there are always ways for the city to reconsider certain assumptions along the way. Council began recommending their own changes with a motion from Councillor Gawler to make portions of Street A active transportation only. Staff were not in favor of this idea because emergency services asked for a north-south connection other than Gordon Street, and because it would create more connectivity issues in the south end, so the motion failed 4-8. Also on roads, Councillor Downer proposed a motion to direct the design of Street A to serve as a collector road so that it doesn't accidentally become an arterial road. That motion was passed quickly and unanimously. Next, Gawler proposed a motion to maximize the parkland totals for a potential population in Clare Maltby of 25,000. Staff said addressing the motion could mean an additional two years of work for the plan, and they added that 25,000 people in Clare Maltby is an outside figure because it would mean every single property in the area would be built to its maximum density, which seems unlikely. Councillor Bell framed the question as parks versus roads, which some councillors found distasteful. This motion failed by a vote of 3 to 9. From Ward 6, Councillor O'Rourke came a proposed motion to direct staff to look at ways to make sure that when construction begins on the southernmost end of the development, that people coming into Guelph along Gordon are not hitting a wall of 10-story buildings. This motion will go down in the annals of Council lore for Councillor Bell's screed about how Guelph will eventually have to annex land south of Maltby, which Councillor Caron called, quote-unquote, fortune-telling. The motion was approved 8-4. to four. The full and amended Claire Maltby secondary plan passed 11-1, to one, with Bell being the notable exception. The longest part of May's regular council meeting was waiting for council to finish their extra-long closed session. About 20 minutes after the open session began, council went back in camera to reach a decision about Southgate Business Park Land's proposed term sheet. An hour later, council emerged. On the Southgate Business Park lands, Council presented a complex motion to go back to the proponent asking that the development plan include compensation for 35,000 trees, a conveyance for the Natural Heritage System land, a conveyance of 11 acres of development land, and the appropriate upgrades to road and area infrastructure. Mayor Guthrie said that the decision reflects the city's commitment to, quote, get to yes, unquote, by working proactively with business and developers. The motion was passed 10 to 3. It was a very technocratic June meeting at Committee of the Whole with the presentation of the external audit, the presentation of two updates to water-based master plans, and the designation of Guelph as a bird city. There was also a marathon staff recognition, which got to happen in person in the council chambers for the first time in 26 months. Matthew Bedick from KPMG presented the external audit, and the phrase, quote, KPMG did not find any issues through our audit procedures on the above noted areas of focus, unquote, was a statement frequently heard in the report. Shauna O'Dwyer from the City of Guelph reported that when it comes to the city's finances, the health of administration reserves is coming at the expense of getting capital projects started, but that's a long-term issue. As for the short term, Bedick said that inflation will likely be the most immediate financial pressure, with fuel and infrastructure being especially impacted by recent global economic trends. After a short break, Council unanimously passed a motion to become a bird city and formally induct the black-capped chickadee as Guelph's official bird. 
Next, staff presented the 2021 Water Supply Master Plan Update and the 2022 Wastewater Treatment and Biosolids Management Master Plan Update. Both reports covered aspects of water management over the next 30 years, and both presented the need for a lot of capital investment over those three decades. Committee wanted to know about the cost impact of capital water projects, especially the projects meant to accommodate growth in Guelph. A utility rate study should be commencing later this year, and these master plans will also feed into the development charge study as well. The June 13th planning meeting didn't end up happening. Technical snafus forced the meeting's cancellation when the councillors and staff in the chambers couldn't communicate with those attending virtually. The work meant to be tackled at the June planning meeting ended up being spread out over several of the following meetings, starting with a special meeting on June 20th to approve the 15 Forbes Avenue Heritage Permit. That meeting was over in about 15 minutes and in less than 10 tweets. The next full meeting was actually the shareholder meeting of Guelph Municipal Holdings, Inc., and there was a surprise announcement after a closed meeting in camera. It was announced that the downtown district energy node had been sold to Cascara Energy, a Toronto-based company that specializes in clean tech and green power. GMHI CEO Scott Stewart said that the Cascara sale is good news and the result of good guidance from council, aka the shareholder. The audited financial statements and the annual report were both received swiftly and smoothly. After that, there is a shareholder meeting for Guelph Junction Railway. The main thrust of the annual report, again presented by Stewart, was that GJR had returned to profitability after a COVID-caused slump in 2020. Two delegates had some concerns to share, including GJR taking more of an active role exploiting the rail line's potential for trail development and the apparent priority of GJR to maximize profits over other considerations. Among the shareholder, there were some concerns about potentially splitting the city's trail development efforts between the Parks Department and GJR, and Stewart noticed that the focus on profits this year was because of the COVID dip last year. Also, he noted it's hard to reinvest in GGR's capital without a healthy return on investment. In an additional motion, Councillor Downer offered direction to have GGR staff collaborate with the Parks Department on trail opportunities and to develop an annual report on those efforts. The motion also directed Council to look at the earmarking of GGR dividends as an investment into developing trails during the 2023 budget discussion. While the shareholder can't decide how to allocate the dividend, it is transferred to the infrastructure reserve, at which point council can then decide how to spend it. Sounds confusing. Downer's motions were approved unanimously. It was then time for the regular council meeting, which was chaired by Councillor Guller because Mayor Guthrie had to duck out for his daughter's high school graduation. He would be back later in the meeting, though. Things got started with the revisiting of the 2021 Water Supply Master Plan update from committee, and Council expressed some concern about the assumption that Guelph has enough water to cover growth up to 2051. Staff, however, said that they were, quote, quite conservative, unquote, in their assumptions about the potential future impact of drought and climate change, and that report was eventually passed unanimously. The next discussion was around the decision report on the Emma Earl Bridge, 
which brought two very enthusiastic responses from delegates and one very suspicious one. Council regular Dr. Hugh Whiteley suggested that the city could include a platform for a river view along the bridge, and that was his only criticism. But Martin Collier from the residents for a safe Speedvale Avenue tried again to get council to scrap the whole darn thing as a matter of safety and the environment. Council would find safety concerns rather unpersuasive, and a couple of councillors went further and said that they even found them offensive. Councillor Phil Alt was one of them and added that his concerns about the project have been answered and that he didn't want to go backwards by starting again from scratch on the project. Councillor Caron said that design was going to be key to the project and got some assurances from staff that there would be opportunities for community input on what the bridge would look like, including those platforms Dr. Whiteley talked about. The recommendation was approved unanimously. Next was a motion from Mayor Guthrie, who at that point had rejoined the meeting via video about a proposed environmental assessment for the rail crossing on Edinburgh Road, where it meets the Metrolinx tracks. Two delegates expressed more than a little suspicion about the process and a lot of concern about the area losing a sense of cohesion and connectivity. The council debate, though, focused on the new motion from Mayor Guthrie, which directed staff to take specific measures on community engagement, like making sure that everyone in a 300-meter radius is included in the notification. City engineer Terry Gaiman said that he appreciated that many residents were caught unawares about the initiation of the EA and that staff were looking for direction from council about how to, quote, soften the blow, unquote, and proceed better in the future. The mayor's new recommendation was passed unanimously as the preferred solution to that issue, but Councillor Gawler's motion to suspend the bylaw rules concerning the parking of recreational vehicles this summer failed by a vote of 4-7. to seven. After that, Councillor Hufflin's requested update about the city's race to zero climate change targets was gratefully received. July's committee meeting started with a surprisingly lengthy and complex discussion about next year's council meeting calendar. While members of City Council welcomed the change to Tuesday meetings, they were skeptical of the clerk's suggestion to switch to a 10 a.m. start time for all of those meetings. The move to morning meetings was suggested as a way to improve equity and increase accessibility to meetings for those who do shift work, many of whom are part of racialized communities. This was not the same conclusion that city councillors had, though. They were concerned that the change would not only be exclusionary to people who have to work during the day, but also to people who might want to run for a council seat, but can't take three or four days off from work every month in order to do it. A motion was crafted to approve the change to Tuesdays, but to send staff back for a holistic review to find out what start time would be appropriate for council meetings. That motion was approved. So the clerks had to prepare a memo on engagement and a new council meeting schedule with the regular times for that end of July meeting. The Paramedic Service Response Performance 2021 and Performance Plan for 2023 came with a specific warning about the offload times at Guelph General Hospital, which Paramedic Chief Stephen Dewar warned could continue for the foreseeable future. Dewar explained that there have been instances when 11 ambulances were lined up at any given time outside the hospital. Code Yellow was called three times in a day in the month of May, and there was actually one Code Red incident in May where there were no ambulances available anywhere in Guelph and Wellington for 16 straight minutes. 
Although not a uniquely Guelph problem, Dewar asked committee to keep pushing the provincial government for more resources, especially at the upcoming Association of Municipalities of Ontario meeting, which is this month in Ottawa, in fact, in a few weeks. The last item was a slate of motions from Mayor Cam Guthrie about issues of homelessness, drug addiction, and mental health in the downtown core. Bookshelf founder Barb Manette delegated that things have gotten worse over the last several months with open drug dealing on the streets, constant outbursts, break-in shoplifting, and lots of littering, including used needles. Two other delegates made similar observations. Some members of the committee noted the difficulty in making sweeping requests of the county, especially in the middle of summer and in the middle of an election. And there was also a lot of discussion about the systemic limitations of the city to deal with social service issues and the division of labor and responsibility between the county and the city and the government of Ontario. Much of the debate focused on the addition of a seventh clause redirecting $50,000 unspent from the council training budget to hiring a third person for welcoming streets. An amendment was proposed to let the strategic advisory group created in Clause 6 to determine how best to spend the money put on the table in Clause 7. That was unanimously passed by council. Ultimately, all seven recommendations were passed by committee, but there was still more debate to be had at the July 18th council meeting on this and at least a couple of other committee reports. In the meantime, there was a special meeting of council one week later to pass the latest update to the official plan for the entire city of Guelph. So naturally, about half of the delegates were there to talk about the Rolling Hills area. A couple of others expressed concern about the high-density designation for the Armtech site on George Street. Some wanted a bit more flexibility in commercial areas. And the CEO of the Guelph Chamber of Commerce said that the downtown density targets needed to be bolder. While discussing the Rolling Hills area, staff tried to reinforce that if there's any development there, it will be limited to the Clare Road facing side, and it will only occur once the area is connected to city services, which could be sometime beyond 2051. Staff also explained how they built in more protection for the natural heritage system in the plan, with the focus on the southern end of Rolling Hills, where the area starts running into the Paris Gulf Moraine. The first motion to try and change something in the staff-presented plan came from Councillor Caron, who wanted to reinsert recognition of the cooling registry of buildings from before 1929 into the heritage portion of the plan. References were taken out because the cooling list is a product unique to Guelph and thus has no provision in provincial regulations, and the motion failed 6-7. to seven. For George Street, the Ward 2 councillors brought a motion to change the designation for the Armtech site from high to medium density. Most everyone on council agreed that making this site high density is not a good fit for the area, especially since it was a decision made almost 20 years ago in an earlier amendment, and that motion passed 8-5. to five. Councillor O'Rourke was not as successful when it came to her motion to adjust the number of residents and jobs per hectare at Gordon and Arkell from 120 to 100, which failed 5-8. to eight. O'Rourke's two other motions, though, found unanimous support one that formalizes engagement with Guelph's neighboring townships, and another to promote knowledge-based sectors like advanced manufacturing. The amended recommendations were passed unanimously, and now it's likely on to the Ontario Land Tribunal for appeals. About an hour later, the monthly planning meeting got underway with the approval of a townhouse development on Grange Road, and after a couple of delegations, the approval of the latest piece of the Metalworks development. 
There was some concern about the public areas and wayfinding for the walkways through the development, but for the most part, Council was bullish on the project. On 78 and 82 Eastview Road, Council followed the recommendation from staff to turn down the application after two delegates spoke in favor of voting against it. Mayor Guthrie said he doesn't like refusing an application, but if it comes down to a matter of water or something technical like that, that's something the city can't ignore. On the new applications, Council finally heard the case for a new 10-story mixed-use building for student housing on the site where the Days Inn currently sits. Naturally, area residents had a big problem with the size of the proposed development, plus noise and traffic. Council was concerned about the loss of green space and the loss of another area hotel to redevelopment. The last item was the application for 1166 to 1204 Gordon Street, which was just as controversial. The plan calls for two six-story apartment buildings on the Gordon side with a total of 134 units and 22 three-story on-street townhouse units on the Lansdowne side, which a number of area residents explained was too much density for the area. Council had some sympathy for the sheer size of this project, but since it was a statutory meeting, both applications were received unanimously by Council. A very busy week at City Council wrapped up with a very long and still very busy special Wednesday meeting. Up first, there was the matter of the proposed demolition of 50 to 65 Road, the former home of Guelph businessman and Mayor F.J. Chadwick. For upbuilding a nonprofit home builder, it was standing in the way of constructing 18 new affordable units, and while Heritage Guelph wanted the entire tower that was part of the home saved, upbuilding head Howard Kennedy explained that he just wanted to save the heritage elements which were at the top of the tower, and staff were okay with that. There was some confusion among the councillors if the staff recommendation in the agenda and the will of upbuilding were one and the same. Once council got that confirmation, Councillor Caron tried to see if there was a way to save the whole building, but Mayor Guthrie felt it was a matter of spending millions to save five units or spending less money to build 18, and the motion was approved 11 to 2. Next was the public meeting for 1563 to 1576 Gordon Street, a project to develop 154 units in stacked townhouses, as well as eight single detached dwelling units across nine plots between Gordon and Don Avenue. The area residents that delegated were concerned about the size of the project, drainage issues in the area, parking and traffic, and the fate of trees on the properties. Many on council did share those concerns, but the application was still received unanimously. The biggest item of the night, though, was the statutory planning meeting for the report on the Comprehensive Zoning Bylaw Review. After a complete and thorough report by staff plus delegations, Guthrie announced that he knew about 15 different motions from council to make amendments. Noting the time, which by that point was after 9 p.m., the mayor said it would be better to just treat this like a true planning meeting and give staff notes about changes as opposed to debating full motions. After a 40-minute debate on that idea, council agreed. So in terms of those notes... There was a lot of agreement that there's still not enough flexibility in the new rules for driveway width and garage size, that more flexibility was needed for viewing platforms on bridges and boardwalks, and that there needed to be more allowances for accessibility. 
A couple of delegates also discussed their concerns about new bylaws governing the placement and use of storage containers being employed by various small businesses as auxiliary storage for tools and materials, and many councillors encouraged staff to work with those business people to help find a compromise. The GM of Planning, Krista Walke, left the meeting with 15 pages of notes and council approved receipt of the report unanimously. Finally, we arrive at the July 18th regular meeting, the last council meeting before summer break. After a presentation from a consortium of local nonprofit groups who updated council about supportive housing projects in Guelph, the Horseshoe revisited the seven committee motions under urgent issues related to homelessness, mental health, and addictions. Some of the motions passed quickly after a council question or two, and others were passed after some brief wordsmithing for clarity or specificity. The others, though, not so much. The first place that council got really stuck was on the creation of the Strategic Advisory Group on Downtown Issues. Some on council wanted a more formalized process with a recruitment campaign and the drafting of terms of references, but others felt that going that route would take too long, especially with there being only two meetings between the end of July and November. The motion was eventually passed unanimously without any additional changes. On item number seven, council amended the original recommendation to take $50,000 from the operating contingency reserve and then bumped it up to 100000 before someone asked the question about what exactly this money was being allocated to. The final vote on the amended number seven failed in a 6-6 tie, which forced council to return to the original committee motion to allocate 50000 to the Welcoming Streets initiative, and that motion passed unanimously. On a new motion number eight, it was meant to allocate the $500,000 in funds in the affordable housing reserve as matching funds for the United Way and Community Foundation's Home for Good campaign. This opened up a can of worms about process and a motion to refer the matter to the 2023 budget review, during which Councillor Bell accused his fellow councillors of dithering on affordable housing. That referral ended up failing, and Mayor Guthrie asked council to take a breath. A different amendment came forward to ask Home for Good to waive the 5% administration fee, but that also failed 6-6. And then council returned to pummeling the mayor rhetorically for ignoring the regular process of these meetings and only making council aware of this motion on Friday afternoon. The motion did eventually pass, though, in a vote of 10-3. to the next item was the Community Benefit Charge and Parkland Dedication Bylaw Update. Five delegates each made a case for going after the maximum and or removing the cap when collecting Parkland funds. Council passed the staff-approved slate of recommendations, plus a motion to look at removing caps as part of the upcoming park plan. Another motion to have staff explore the creation of a mechanism that would require community benefit charges to be spent where they're collected, was also passed. Last but not least, the 2023 Council and Committee meeting schedule had to be approved. Concerns about holding meetings at 10 a.m. persisted, and some on Council now weren't even sure that they wanted to make the move to Tuesdays, which reopened the debate about public engagement and how the proposed changes came from the clerks without any advanced public feedback or reaction. Ironically, the debate had to pause in order for council to pass a motion to suspend the procedural bylaw and go past midnight, 
And after a bit more discussion, Council passed the new 2023 calendar with Tuesday meeting dates and the same start times as they have now, plus an additional motion to have clerks do a round of community engagement about other changes to the calendar in the year 2024, or I should say potential changes to the calendar in 2024, which is still blissfully over a year away. So that's 2022 at Guelph City Council so far. The next meeting of council is September's planning meeting on Monday, September 12th at 6.30 p.m. And then there's a special meeting on Wednesday, September 14th at 6 p.m. Then there's no more meetings because of the October 24th election. The last meeting of this term before the new council is sworn in will be November 1st at 6 p.m. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, or send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you may certainly do that by getting all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time. (laughs) 